Good to see you guys. Good morning. Good morning. Whoever used this before me put it on their left ear, and I always love it on my right ear. Stinking Fred. Stinking Fred. Stinking Fred. Well, I'd love to invite someone up to join me for a second. Kelly Cop, will you come on up? Kelly's got a great story of, of coming to Hillcrest a couple years ago, and one of the very first things she did around here was uh, jump into serving at Triple Treat. So, Kelly, why don't you introduce yourself and, and tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit of what that experience was like for you. So good morning, everyone. My name is Kelly Kopp. I attend with my wonderful husband, Michael, our twin daughters, and our baby, Mackenzie. Um, so I was brand new to Hillcrest, and so was David. And I joke that I made the mistake of making eye contact with him <laughs> because he then um, just invited me into serving at this huge event. And um, my first experience was I did face painting is what he asked me to do. And I'm like, have you seen me paint anything? It does not go well. You'll be fine. Um, You'll be fine. But, yeah, I later learned that um, there was a talented group of student artists and adults who took care of that. But, um, yeah, my first experience with it was just coming on campus at the high school. Like, I was welcomed from the moment I pulled my car up to um, the moment I left. And it was really sweet to be a part of the body and serving with not only the students but the adults and just really seeing how everyone rallies together um, to pull this event off to just love and welcome the community. So, mm. Mm. Thank you, Kelly, very much. I appreciate your help. Thank you. Because, because we think Triple Treat is a phenomenal way for us to invest in our community and we collectively, uh, with Kelly and Mike and many of us, get to serve and love our community, and instead, it's going to look a little different this year. Uh, scattered all across our town in homes and neighborhoods around our community, we actually feel like this is a great leveraged way of seeing our vision uh, get expressed in our community. So I'd encourage you, this is a great way both to love our community, but also I hope to get to know some of the other people of, uh, of Hillcrest and experience life in the body. A and another thing happening this Sunday, next steps, join us in the activity center. If you haven't signed up, but you're looking, what's my next step around at Hillcrest? Uh, jump in at the activity center. Fred is leading, uh, facilitating a little next steps class for us down there. And uh, if you are looking for a way just to continue to journey through James, email the office. There's a packet that looks through our first nine weeks uh, this fall, just to, again, journey along in James. So I, I don't know if this is true for you. I was just in California uh, as a groomsman for a buddy of mine, uh, my buddy Juan. Uh, uh, he's a LAP, or he, he's now Sacramento PD, uh, and he was one of the groomsmen back for me 12 years ago, hard to believe. And so when he was getting married, he reached out and said, hey, would, would you like to be a groomsman? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that means I'm going to be on a plane from here to California. Do you guys pray up the seat before you go and sit down? Do you guys do that? Do you pray for the person you might be sitting next to on the plane? So, well, I do. I'd encourage you to. And so as I'm getting on the plane, I start talking to the guy. I think his name was Nick next to me. And then I hear this psst, psst, behind me. 
Pastor David. <laughs> I'm like, who's, who's me? So I turn around, and Eric Zangler, he's one of our uh, young professionals around here, is sitting in the row behind me. He had a flight from here to Texas, and then he was going to go Texas, Montana. got canceled. So instead, he was on the flight to Minnesota. So what do I do? Yeah, forget the guy I'm sitting next to. I'm going to go sit next to Eric. And, and he happened to be sitting in the exit row as well. So it was a win. It was a win-win, a little more leg room. But it was a blast just to, just to hang with Eric uh, for the hour between here and Minneapolis and talk about life. Uh, and, and I hope that's what we do as a community. We've been focused on three things around here since our last annual meeting. I, I just wanted to revisit those briefly that we actually want to pray, believing God is at work and he's ordaining circumstances. Uh, I was thinking about showing the next picture of my next flight after Eric and I talked. I'm like, hey, let's pray for who we might sit next to on the next flight. I didn't sit next to anyone on the next flight. Both (laughs) seats were empty. So I don't know if God was sparing them from a conversation or knew what I needed. Uh, but, But we believe that God's at work. And so we pray and then we actually watch. In every moment of every day, we're actually watching to believe he is at work in people's lives in Oregon, in our homes, our neighborhoods, praying for moments with our kids, with our workplace. You're planted strategically in your workplace. You actually get paid to go be an everyday missionary. It's an incredible thing. And then we actually want to see our values. We have five values around here. We want to see those values permeate everything we do around here increasingly. I love this quote from Will Mancini. The very reason we have programs is to develop and equip people to practice ministry. Where? Outside the program. It's ultimately not about the program. Instead, if programs are not actually equipping people, they're not doing their job. So we have a bunch of things around here. We hope it actually, including Sunday morning gatherings, we actually love our sin at the end of the service because we believe God is at work in your lives. And then uh, we love those more intimate settings. And like Triple Treat, we love that we have an opportunity to have an impact in where we are planted. And then third, we are sitting in it, right? Our lobby and this auditorium. The elders are so thankful for your continued generosity. It's never about the building, but we believe we're refreshing our space in order that someone might stick around long enough to experience the treasure that is Jesus. It's never about the space, but I am so thankful. We are so thankful for the time, energy, resources, people, skills to do all that has taken place over the past few months to help this space feel just a little bit more welcoming. And so as we head into the text, I just want to always remind us of this reality. There's no tier two disciples, right? If we follow Jesus, we are his disciple and we are growing as a community to be a multi-generational community, but ultimately communities, plural. We would love to see more communities that have that same heart as Hillcrest to be disciples, following Jesus, building community and seeking transformation in our homes, neighborhoods, and world. So pray with me, and then we are jumping into the text this morning, James 1, 9 to 11, but, but God continues to be faithful to us as a community. God, thank you for the work you're doing around here. Thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. Uh, we ultimately just want to see you. We want to build our lives around and on you as our rock, as our foundation in the midst of the storms and challenges and circumstances of this life. So help us hear from you this morning. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. 
So we're in James 1, 9 to 11. I just want to do a look back at where James has been because I think he is building. He's, he's a thoughtful writer, Jesus' brother. He's trying to package all these things he's learned from his brother to encourage the, the, the Jewish Christians and then also us readers about what God is doing. And so I just think of us on this timeline in life. And we just have these circumstances that come up, big and small in this life. We have these trials. We have these things that hit our life, these, this gap between our actual state and our desired state. And, and, and if, you're, if you're breathing, they seem to happen. They just, there's a, an, a successive loop of these things. They just keep moving. These circumstances of our life, big and small, in our jobs, in our home, getting frustrated with my kids, stinking coworkers that put the ear thing on wrong. I mean, just, just challenges in life. The Vikings are now one and three. I mean, the list is endless. We just have these situations in life. But there's something happening beneath the surface in this, and James tells us, he says, I want you to count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, for you know the testings of your faith is producing something. There's something happening Beyond the linear circumstances, it's producing steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But what seems to happen is this natural life cycle. And we're going to say it's, it's, generally speaking, our culture's view on life, where we experience a trial in observable reality, and how do we know? Well, man, we go, ouch! That was, that was painful! There was pain involved in that. Maybe some relational tension. I mean, we're looking at our culture right now, and and there could be frustration. You're feeling in a variety of ways. I know I am. Ouch. And then there's emotions that tend to accompany that pain. Sadness. We grieve. We hurt. Worry, anger, bitterness, despair, resentment. There's emotions that begin to well up in us, and we don't manufacture those. They just come, right? If something happens, I don't go, huh, you know, I think I'm going to feel angry. No, I just get angry, right? I, I don't feel, you know, man, I, I think I'm going to feel impatient. No, I, I just get impatient. And then what happens? In the natural life cycle of life, broadly speaking, those, pain, those painful circumstances might not always get completed. And then what happens? We cycle back to another trial. James is offering something different. He says, what do you do? When you don't understand what's going on, you actually ask for wisdom. You pray for God's perspective in the circumstances. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We've been praying this prayer. I hope you've posted this somewhere, written it down. We're asking God, use my circumstances to help me gain your perspective and see the circumstance of my life through your eyes. We're, 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 we're clamoring for God's perspective. We want his perspective desperately and we, we claim dependence on him. I heard this quote recently, prayerlessness is an act of our independence from God. Prayerlessness is an act of our independence from God. We ask for wisdom, God. We need your perspective. James is blasting us. He's saying, ask for wisdom, and God gives it. 
And what are we asking for? Not the change of our circumstances. What are we asking for? Wisdom. We want the life cycle of faith. That's what we want. James says, ask for wisdom. We want the life cycle of faith. So when we experience trial, how do we know it's a trial? We go, ouch. And we're probably filled with some emotion. Don't hear me say to grieve is wrong. To feel that sadness is wrong. We grieve. But here's what tends to happen in the life cycle of faith. There's a completion. We sometimes can see the silver lining. Maybe something that happened to us allowed us to have a conversation with someone down the road that we weren't expecting. Maybe the, the resolution happened in a way that we weren't anticipating. I know that's true for my life. The resolution came in a way that I wasn't anticipating it, and God was faithful. And there was a completion to the circumstance. This is the life cycle of faith. And then what happens? We sometimes go, God, there's joy to be had. Because we can see your hand at work. James, though, is saying something slightly different than just waiting for the completion of the circumstance. What does he say? He says, count it all joy. You guys with me this morning? Can you tell I'm a little fired up? Is that okay? I don't know what it is. Maybe I had a little coffee. I set my coffee to brew last night. Last night I poured the grounds and I set it for 5.30 this morning to be ready to brew. So when I got out of bed, I poured myself a cup of coffee. And, and I don't know if you do this. I actually pour ice. I put ice in a cup and then I pour hot coffee on ice. Is that weird? Yeah. It tastes better. I don't know what it is. And, and some people are like, David, you drink coffee all the time. How do you get any water in your system? Melted ice. It is a phenomenal win-win. You get coffee, you get ice. It's win. The logic, the inconsistent, I don't know. So here's what happens. It's complete. Then what happens? James says, what if we actually counted it all joy before the completion of the circumstance? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What would happen, James says, if simultaneously we were met with multiple emotions? There was joy believing we were claiming God's perspective on our circumstance. What if there was actually joy to be had in the immediacy of that pain? Because we were clinging to God's perspective. What if, James says, on the very onset of a trial, we actually can step back and say with deep joy, God, we are confident you're at work. We are wanting your wisdom. We want your perspective. So here's the question then. With the text this morning, that was just the intro, guys. Welcome. Welcome to a morning. Here's the question for the text this morning. A lot of commentators, a lot of readers of James will say it's just a random smattering of Proverbs. The text we're headed into this morning is one of the ways they claim it's just random, random assortment of Proverbs. James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And I'm always fighting to say, God, I think you wrote this thing and there's a flow to it. We are fighting to understand what the flow and logic of the author is, believing God inspired him. What is one of the biggest areas in our lives where we pray for wisdom? What is one of the biggest areas where sometimes it just feels like I don't see God's perspective as clearly? I think James is about to tell us one of those big areas where we look for wisdom has to do with money. 
Here's what he says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Why insert something about money here? Because it's often one of the biggest things we are seeking wisdom in God's perspective in the midst of the circumstances. So here's where we're headed. James tells us the key to finding joy in all circumstances is increasingly sharing in God's perspective. And this means for this morning's text that we, for those that not recognize the significant in the world eyes, we celebrate our standing as children of God. And for those esteemed by the world, we must never find our significance in the praise of people, but rather in our standing as sinners who have been forgiven. So, uh, I don't feel I need to pray again. We're just jumping into the text. So jump in with me to James 1, 9 to 11. And here's one of the ways that this connects for me. James says, pray for wisdom. And then he says, for the person that must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord, the one not seeking wisdom, the one not seeking God's perspective He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He's about to tell us one way, one expression, how someone could be double-minded. He's about to tell us one expression of where someone could be double-minded. He's going to tell us, find joy in all your circumstances by sharing God's perspective. And if you're not esteemed by the world significant, Find your, don't be double-minded, find your standing as a child of God. Here's what he says, let the lowly brother, let the lowly brother, who's a lowly brother? Who's a lowly brother? (laughs) That's it. The youngest brother, lowest on the totem pole. You guys probably know this already because you, you, you see this, but you guys know I'm an only child. You were like, we could tell, David, we could tell. The, I just figured the world revolved around me as a little kid. Casey might still feel that way sometimes. Let the lowly brother, who is that? I mean, I, I just assume we know how the world values success. We know what the criteria is. Someone who's a lowly brother, what is that? We just measure people based upon the money they have, an unusual skill they might possess. I mean, again, someone can chuck a ball 300 yards a game, right? We go, dang, that guy's impressive. We begin having conversations about who the goat is, who the greatest of all time is. Physical appearance, plastic surgery, right? I mean, we, we begin posting what we want people to see on our social media platforms, what we perceive to be viewed as successful, a position or title, what's recognized, who's the lowly brother? We understand influencer status, that's something to crave. Or even just being associated with someone. James says, let the lowly brother boast. Someone who doesn't possess any of those things, what ought he boast in? He's not boasting in any of those things that might be perceived as successful. What does James say to boast in? Boast in your exaltation. 
How is a lowly brother, someone who's not perceived as successful at all, what are they boasting in? What is that exaltation they ought to boast in? Here's how Peter tells us. Just last book we read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are we boasting in? What is the exaltation James is referencing? God has caused you, if you treasure Jesus, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope. If you treasure Jesus, he has an inheritance waiting for you beyond this life. If you treasure Jesus above anything else in this life, God is actually using all the circumstances of our life right now to develop our faith in him. To be said slightly different, that's the language of the text. What are we boasting in? That we know the meaning and purpose of life. That we know God and that we are known by God. James is telling us our wealth doesn't determine our worth. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation that your wealth doesn't determine your identity and value. Instead, we know and are known by God. And then he continues. For those that are lowly, boast in the reality that you are known by God. And for those esteemed by the world, we must never find our significance in the praise of people, but rather in our standing as sinners who have been forgiven. Here's what he says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And this might not be fascinating to you. I find this stuff incredibly interesting. Let the lowly, what does he say? Brother. And the rich, he doesn't say brother, and he, he doesn't say boast. So there's a challenge that we as readers are trying to understand. One, how does money fit into the flow and the topic of James? I think it's a big area we cry for God's wisdom. The second biggest question, who exactly is James referring to when he says the one who is rich? Is he talking about a non-Christian that is, is, is finding significance and ultimately will pass away? Or is he talking about a Christian that would boast in his standing before God. I'm going to walk you through what I, what I see, but test this, right? This is where we're trying to hear from God. You can make the text say anything you want. You guys believe that? People do it. They just make words mean whatever they want them to mean. We're trying to hear from the author, understand what he says, and apply it to our lives. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. What's he referring to? If we go back to the verse right before, what does he say? Pray for wisdom, and the person who's not seeing the world from God's perspective is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So I want to put up a quadrant that made sense in my head. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. 
In what ways are we potentially in danger of being double-minded? Whether you're poor or you're rich, you have the possibility of being double-minded. There is a godly way to be poor and an ungodly way to be poor. And there's a godly way to be rich and an ungodly way to be rich. Don't be double-minded, James says. Instead, what does he say? Have God's perspective. Have a godly perspective. Because what are those who have not want? James writers, or James readers, I just assume, are a bunch of have-nots who just got kicked out of Jerusalem and are scattered all over the known world. They have not. What do they want? They want to have. They want significance in the eyes of the world. They want, as a lowly brother, they're looking for something, and yet James says, you have something better than that. You actually have Jesus present with you. Those that have, what do they want? I just assume they want to have more. You look at the richest people in the world, I assume they're not content with being number three or four on the list. They want to continue to escalate their value. And yet, what does Jesus say? Through James, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. You have something greater than anything this world can provide. You have Jesus. And let the rich boast in their humiliation. If you're a, if you're a Christian who maybe came to faith, and, and you know the middle class is a modern day phenomenon, can you just imagine sitting in a first century church where you have lowest class possible citizens with now these rich landowners coming to faith and there's this unique pairing taking place in the local church in the first century. He's telling, I think, those Christian landowners boast in the fact that it's not your riches that provide significance. It's actually in your humiliation. What's your humiliation? Because is he saying it's spiritual to be poor? I don't think so. He's not saying some poverty gospel that you should just want to be poor. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying wherever you find yourself in this spectrum of resources, there is a godly way to go about it and there's an ungodly way to go about it. What's the godly way to go about it? We celebrate our standing as children of God if we are not seen as significant in the eyes of the world. And if potentially we are seen as significant in the eyes of the world, don't anchor your identity in that. Instead, see your primary lens as a sinner saved by grace. Here's what Paul tells us in Ephesians that helps anchor that sinner saved by grace. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. You guys with me this morning? I get a little too much energy, don't I? Just a little too much energy. This stuff wrecks. Again, Jesus, you guys understand, Jesus' mentality of the world is an upside-down view of life. Everybody else in life says, get it while you can. I thought about putting like 20 quotes up of people about their view of money. 
Everyone else says, man, isn't this the way life is best to be lived? Get as much as you can while you can for tomorrow you die, right? This is how recognition and significance is found. How many followers I have on Instagram, how big my bank account, my 401k. And yet James and Jesus is saying there's a different way to view this life. He's not saying spiritual be poor. Money's just a tool. How we view it is what matters. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches in his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. While we were dead, do we see ourselves primarily through that lens? And these, this is just the same list. It's not divided by the category there. It's just the same list at the beginning. What, what would be the ungodly poor or the ungodly rich? We begin viewing our life primarily through the connection we have to someone who's perceived as significant. We primarily attach our worth to whatever unusual skill we might possess. There was a time when I could barely dunk the basketball. That was a long time ago. Not much of an unusual skill, but man, there's some guys that, get, that have a very, very gifted skill. Physical appearance, some still clinging on to finding their worth there. Money, position, fame. Where is my primary identity being found? James is saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds and pray for God's perspective, knowing that this is an issue that's close to our hearts. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Why? Why might we do that? Why might we see life through that lens? He tells us for. What if we see the word for or because or also? We're looking for those. He's giving us the argument because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. He will pass away. James, like a good Jew, is hearkening back to the Old Testament, two key verses that we would all know and hear. Isaiah 40, a voice cries, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. And when the breath of the Lord, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and is gone and its place knows it no more. There are a lot of successful, influential people buried in the ground. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the field, he will pass away. The, the inevitable end, the inevitable end for us. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also, and I love this, so also, Will the rich man fade away, cease to exist? This is where Christian, non-Christian, some are interpreting that as judgment, or is it just cease to exist? In the midst of his pursuits means in his daily business dealings. So the rich man is going to fade away in the midst of all the activities. Does that sound familiar to what Jesus was saying? Fool, tonight your life is required of you. What are you living for? Well, what's, what's the thing that is closest to your heart? Here's some takeaways. 
But I want to read one quote that, that hit me from a guy named Randy Alcorn from The Treasure Principle about just shifting our mindset as it pertains to resources. He says this, imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now suppose you know for a fact that the North's going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency in the only moment that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough. Money's not bad, right? Money's not bad. Keep only enough. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. Kingdom currency backed by an eternal treasury is the only medium of exchange recognized by the Son of God whose government will last forever. The currency of his kingdom is our present faithful service and sacrificial use of our resources for him. The payoff in eternity will be what Paul called a firm foundation consisting of treasures beyond our wildest dreams. Here's three takeaways for how I might encourage you to apply James 1, 9 to 11 this week in your life. Faith works when I'm tested. When I'm tested, what is being revealed? And, and we developed three ideas that would help us gauge that. Trials identify, reveal, and raise to the surface what we truly love and value. Trials help us appraise how much joy we find in something, and trials draw us back to God as the ultimate source of joy. And so, whether we're rich or poor, the brevity of life demands that we focus on what matters most. And what matters most happens to be a person. And that person's name is Jesus. And so I just want to walk through six different potential symptoms that might help gauge for you if resources are beginning to clamor more at your heart and we pray for a godly perspective. We pray for wisdom. Do we spend more time thinking about money and stuff than God? Whether rich or poor is not the question. Is it a God, are we double-minded? Is it a godly or an ungodly perspective? Do we spend more time thinking about money and stuff? Do we spend more time thinking about money and stuff than people? You guys know I'm building a deck. Have I talked to you about this? Man, I tell you, I, when I read this text, I was convicted. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that dang deck in my backyard. Oh, man, it has been exhausting. Do I care more about that than money and stuff than people? When I showed up late to my girls' soccer game this week, I go, I care a little bit more about this dang deck. Do we hold possessions tightly? Do these things just start to, to accumulate in our soul? You know how to take a Christian off mission? Give them a mortgage. Give them a deck. Give them a car payment. We lose sight of the thing that matters most in this life. Man, what kind of snowblower do I need as winter comes? Do I need to get another two-stage or is my one-stage going to suffice? Maybe we're so overwhelmed with debt and we, we, just, we just can't even see beyond the debt that's accumulated. That is something that we love to help facilitate around here. We do Financial Peace University from time to time. We love to help release this hold that possessions have on our life. Do we regard money and stuff as mine 
Or do I see myself as a steward? Do I see that God is actually the one entrusting me with whatever I possess? And is the loss of money devastating? Whether rich or poor, does it just wreck me? Do I fall into a depression when I watch the stock market? And don't hear me say watching the stock market's illegitimate. Don't hear me say striving for success is illegitimate. Don't hear that, right? I hope you heard me say that. I want to say it again. This is not about being rich or poor. It's a godly or ungodly perspective with what we've been entrusted with. But is a loss of money devastating. And when I get a little bonus, am I more exhilarated than what that thing can actually provide for my soul? <laughs> At Hillcrest, we believe that everything is from God. This includes our time, our treasure, our talent, and we simply, we simply want to honor God with what we've been entrusted. Pray with me. Oh God, you are so good to us. You're so generous in so many ways. We look at our culture, we look at our circumstances, we look at the pain in our life. Help us see that you are at work. Help us ask to have your perspective on our circumstances. We want your wisdom. We want your lens on this life with our time, with our treasure, with our talents. Help us increasingly, increasingly see life through your lens. May we ask God, use my circumstances to gain your perspective and see the circumstances of my life through your eyes. Always for your glory, we pray. That's so good. Um, we've been saying this phrase a lot here, that Jesus is better. <clears throat> in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our suffering, uh, but even in the midst of our joy or in the midst of our um, bonus, as that is uh, a great example, that uh, Jesus is still better. And so um, <clears throat> I find this continually becoming more and more true in my life. I like to watch good shows. I like to eat good food. I like to watch a good game. Um, but that phrase, Jesus is better, is becoming more and more true every day for me. We found this song called Jesus is Better, written by a worship pastor named Aaron Ivey in Texas. And I just think it's incredibly powerful. He captures this in the bridge. Um, and it's more than any comfort, more than my sorrows, everything that I have, Jesus is better. So, being a, a good worship pastor, I want to attach this phrase, this theology, this belief that we have, I want to attach it to this song. So would you please stand as we sing. I'm going to teach you the chorus so that when we sing it, it uh, around, it comes, when it comes back around, it's a little more familiar for you guys. The first time I'll sing it over you, the second time, would you please join me? And then as we sing that chorus over and over, join me in its truth and its power that it brings. <clears throat> 